Hey, listeners, this is David. You have oftentimes heard me say that we are recording from the William Adams Studios, and they are named for my longtime, perhaps my longest-time friend, Bill Adams, who I grew up with and who I know from my days in Columbus, Georgia. As we are recording this, I am sad to report that William Adams Sr., Bill Adams' father, passed away. He was a man who was very much a part of his community, He oftentimes used his skills as a surgeon to help those who were not able to repay him other than with their gratitude. I just want to say that his memory is a blessing, and I am thankful for the Adams family and for all that they have meant in my life, and I hope that you will join me in my prayers for Bill and for his brothers and his mother. Thank you. This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Meggie Lee Calvin. She's Director of Engagement for the Institute for Discipleship at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. She's also the co-host of a podcast called The Listening Chair. She is the author of a couple of books. The first book was called The Blue Bonnet Child, and it tries to help children who are in difficult situations to find their place and find their way. But today we're going to be discussing a book that has just been released called I Am My Own Sanctuary, How a Recovering Holy Roller Found Healing and Power. Meggie Lee Calvin, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. It's my honor to be here. Well, so talk to me first of all about this subtitle of your book. You call yourself a recovering holy roller, and I'd really like to know what you mean by that term, because when I heard that term, a whole flood of images went through my mind, but I want to know, and I think my listeners want to know what you mean by that term. Yes. So, what I mean by that term is I used to struggle with what I self-diagnosed myself with, uh, Ned Flanders syndrome. And I don't know if any any of your listeners are familiar with the this new little show called The Symptoms. Yeah, so in that show that's actually been on the air for 30 years now, there is Homer and Marge have this neighbor, Ned Flanders, who is just this overly joyful, holy roller and uber-religious, pharisaic with a smile, <laughs> and super judgy, makes every every decision from a place of believing that God's love is performance-based, and love from others is performance-based, and operates out of this fear of any emotion that is not positive, any emotion that is negative, that could be perceived as negative, like annoyance and anger and feeling tired, <laughs> those kind of things. So, yeah, as a recovering Holy Roller, I would say over the past seven years, most of my orthodoxy hasn't changed, but my orthopraxy has changed, if that if, that, if I'm using those words right. <laughs> well, so just so that my listeners are tracking you who may not know the technical language, when you use those terms orthodoxy and orthopraxy, what do you mean by those terms? So I would say I don't have, I did not have that far to, decon- that much to deconstruct theologically, thanks to my missionary grandparents who had me reading amazing, provocative authors like Richard Rohr and Joan Chittister when I was a teenager. (laughs) 
So what I believe did not need that much restoration or deconstruction. However, the way that I acted, the my beliefs of, so my orthopraxy, that how I carried out life, my belief of Christians only listen to Christian music, Christians do not drink, Christians do not stay out late on Saturday night, Christians do not smoke, Christians do not get tattoos, those kind of things. Christians are, in a healthy way, afraid of their bodies and sexuality, their sexuality. So I would say over the past seven years of becoming a recovering holy roller, God has thankfully (laughs) opened my eyes to all of these ways that being a beloved child of God, being a disciple of Christ, how that looks and in 2019. Well, and so let's take two steps back and talk a little bit about your background. So you mentioned that you had grandparents who were missionaries. It's clear that you were raised in a Christian household and that you absorbed from your surroundings, your family and your the culture around you, you absorbed certain messages about what it meant to be Christian. You've begun to sort of talk a little bit about that here in the beginning of the conversation. But maybe let's spell that out, both the simplicity, the simple message, and maybe from that simple message, we can move to the complexity of that message about what it meant and means to you to be Christian. But let's start with that simple message. When you were growing up, what were some of the main flags that you had waved at you that said, this is what it means to be a Christian, this is what it means to be a witness to Christ in the world? Ooh, I'm going to try to keep this short, because <laughs> we don't got all day. <laughs> so the messages at home in my early childhood, which I share in the book, there were very subtle messages of theology and God. I do remember my mom, when we were in the military, we were we moved around a lot. There was a church, this is such a funny, ridiculous story, but it tells so much about my family <laughs> and how they're just irrepressibly unstoppable, is the words I use in the, inter- in the introduction to the book. And this shows that. So we had just moved to a military base, and we, my grandparents, were visiting us at the time, and we went to visit a church. And it was a non-denominational church, but I remember, I remember so vividly, the pastor was a, a petite white man with a suit and red hair, and he talked about the devil a lot. And that totally went against my grandparents' theology. And I remember my grandmother taking my hand, and I had to be under the age of seven, young, young buck, and my grandmother took my hand, and we left the sanctuary. And I know that we left because he just kept talking about that he kept, now I have the words, then I didn't, but he, it was his fear-based theology that he was teaching. And so we left the church, and then the next Sunday, my grandparents had left, they had, they were done with their visit, and my mom, that morning, who, who is an educator, she had set up a table for a Sunday school lesson, and we had church at home that day, us four kids, and my mom. And so and it was so wonderful. We did not go to church for a while in, when we were stationed in that town. And so the messages were about theology and God. They were louder to me from my missionary grandparents at that point. And my parents are, as I share in the book, are a lot louder now about their faith and their spiritual health than they were when, in my early childhood. And so, yeah, the messages came from my grandparents and then my grandparents to help us kids we kids through the external factors, the external stresses that I, I share on the book of um, divorce. And my dad was in the fought in the Gulf, the Gulf War, the Bosnian conflict. We moved a lot. There was a lot of stress on our, our little hearts. And so I'm so thankful that my missionary grandparents connected us to the church at an early age. And I, as a child, did 
that did meet the, the God that heals and wants to heal the broken parts of our stories there. And there was lots of health, lots of health in the faith that I was taught. But there were also some parts that, as I share on the book, were, were not so we're not so healthy. <laughs> well, and so so you mentioned that the, your missionary grandparents, your grandmother rejected this notion of your phrase, a fear-based theology. And so if you were to characterize what animated their theology and maybe a sentence or two, what's the opposite option from fear-based in your opinion? I guess the alternative would be the truth that God desires to reconcile all of creation back to him. And the emphasis should be on the here and now, the emphasis on how humans are capable of creating heaven on earth moments, but also hell on earth moments. And that if we were to write good copy as the marketing department for God, <laughs> it would not be it would not be coming from a place of threats or manipulation or fear or it would not speak of the wrath of God, but more of this the healing power of God and this God that knows you and loves you and wants to cover you in grace and heal those broken parts of you that lead you to to sin, to make choices that hurt your relationship with God and with neighbor. That would be their somewhat heretical theology that, that they passed down to me. So. But And so from this, you have characterized it as being sort of a very good grounding in, it sounds like a loving family that had some solid reflection on where they stood with regard to the Christian faith. But you've also mentioned, and you me- you mentioned in detail in the book, that along the way you also managed to pick up some negative messaging that particularly affected you in your teenage years and your your years as a young adult. And maybe let's take a moment and just sort of, for our listeners, line out what some of those aspects of your Christian journey were. Yeah, and I'm not sure. I It could be the culture, and, and I, I touch on that in the book, that being in the Bible Belt from 11 to 17, those formative years, as local churches often do, they are sometimes tarnished by the culture they're in. <laughs> and so I think that there's some definite confusion when you're raised to be, and no, no one gets all the blame, no one gets all the credit for this, but the culture that I was in, it was very confusing to be raised as a Southern belle. And what I mean by that is there was this undertone, and this this is in the church as well, that as a female, we were, and I hope this doesn't offend your listeners to speak this way, but we were to look in a way and carry ourselves in a way that we would get a man to want to sleep with us, but we could not at all even think about sleeping with a man. And as a, as a teenager, that message is is very confusing, and and so that was the that was probably that will be the part of the book that ruffles the most feathers is the how I call out purity culture and poke fun at it, and also write from a place of lots of remnants of shame there for for being a teenager and having female body parts and wanting to be sexy, but knowing that was sinful, and so uh, the book was not meant. To, to be this this memoir like it wasn't originally wasn't meant to have this satirical memoir flippant memoir feel to it. I really just wanted to write about how I noticed this lack of grit in ministerial leaders, and I noticed this lack of grace for themselves and just utter burnout. So I wanted to shed light and explore and create a moment, a space for reflection on why is it that ministerial leaders lack grit? Why is it that ministerial leaders are really struggle to be differentiated persons? 
and then at one conference I was at, when I was, I had just started the book, I was a month in, and I met a gentleman at a conference, and he said, so where did this come from, your obsession with grit? And then I, it hit me, oh my gosh, it's my crazy family. I have to write about my family, at least the stories that are mine to tell. And then as I started writing it, I found that my own story as this weird holy roller that was that lived for the church as a teenager, started preaching when I was 13, was on a paid staff at 17, it would be a hilarious, self-deprecating case study to look at these parts of being a recovering holy roller, to explore grit, and to explore grace, and so all that to say, so because I was such a devoted, weird teenager that had no life outside the church, but a lot of my weekends were spent at these... (laughs) retreats, these purity culture retreats. And looking back now, as someone who has created curriculum and worked with children and young people for many years now, I I look back and think, oh my gosh, like how did they get away with some of the stuff they did? And I was never physically harmed, but there was emotional harm there when it coming from that place of, of purity culture. And so that's probably the most unhealthy one. And some others were probably this view that there was nothing to learn from other religions, that we as Christians had all the right answers. And I, I remember as an early 20-something, I came across the, the works of Carl Rahner, who wrote about this anonymous Christian theory, and that just that aligned perfectly with my heart. And so that was also in this time that I was evolving, like most early 20-somethings do, and to expanding my views to could I have conversations? Could I have friendships with people that were not Christians without trying to get them to come over to my side? <laughs> and let it be known, that was never that was never taught to me by my grandparents or my parents. But I was hearing that from the church that I love so much and, and other Christian mentors that I love dearly and still do, but, but are much, they're on the other end of the spectrum theologically than I am. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, and today we're speaking with Meggie Lee Calvin. She is the Director of Engagement at the Institute for Discipleship at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas, and we're discussing her recent book, I Am My Own Sanctuary, How a Recovering Holy Roller Found Healing and Power. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're speaking with Meggie Lee Calvin. She's Director of Engagement at the Institute for Discipleship at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas, and today we're discussing her recent book, I Am My Own Sanctuary, How a Recovering Holy Roller Found Healing and Power. Well, you've used a couple of terms in the first part of this conversation that I want to make sure our listeners are following us on, and in particular, you use this word grit, and help me understand what grit means in terms of your notion about what pastors need and what human beings need in their day-to-day lives. Yes, 
I was surprised before I started writing the book, I, I did a Google form survey for some people about grit. And I had so many people, Gen, Gen Z, millennials, Xers, reach out to me and they asked, what do you mean by grit? <laughs> and that really threw me for a loop. <laughs> so this makes sense that you, yeah, this is a great question. As I shared in the beginning of the interview, I have always had this obsession with grit, this obsession with rising from the ashes, rising above challenges, continuing after a goal that you know you were made to chase, rising above hurt and pain. And I explored it in my first book, and I, when I worked in the local church, that was always an undercurrent to lessons and moments with children and volunteers and the programs that we, we worked in was helping them cultivate grit and helping them realize that because the divine resided within them, that they were more resilient and stronger and more courageous than they've ever imagined. So that is what I mean. That is what I mean by grit. And I was seeing a lack of it from a very young age in ministerial leaders because, as I shared, I wish I would have had more regrettable fun as a teenager and as a young adult. I didn't. My life was the church, (laughs) which is so funny. And I remember being very scared as a teenager and shadowing lots of pastors and just seeing burnout, utter no sense of self, no sense of joy, 92 hours of work a week, and a lack of grit. And um, just this passion and um, resiliency when when things got hard. And they were just some of them that that I shadowed as a teenager we're simply just almost zombies just showing up <laughs> to work and their parishioners' preferences had just charred them to a bit or burnt them to a char, whatever the, the saying is, and just utter burnout. And I talk about this some in the book that burnout, it doesn't happen because we get too busy. It happens because we've gotten out of sync with who God made us to be and we have forgotten to live confidently in our talents and in our gifts and so um, that's what I mean by grit, There, that there's no wound that can hold us back, that forgiveness is possible, and there's also no goal that we can't chase and crush. And I know there are some personality types that I annoy when I say those things, but I also know that there are personality types that are hungry for this type of content and that are waiting for me to say those words to them. So I that's why I say them. There's so much there that I want to dig into. So first of all, if I've heard you correctly, grit, in your view, is kind of what in my family we used to call stick-to-itiveness or moxie, that it, it's that, that, that thing that when you start to get pressure pushing against you makes you lean in and continue to go forward. First of all, have I heard, is, is, that, a, is that a fair characterization of what you just said? Yes, Definitely. But secondly, when, when I was reading the book and I, and I came across this word grit again and again, the other thing that it made me think of is the way that an oyster will take a little bit of irritation, like a little bit of sand in its membranes, and it'll begin to, to cover that bit of sand, that bit of grit, with layers and layers that eventually become a pearl. And so if I'm hearing correctly, there's a little bit of that in this, too, that it's not just leaning in, but also the confidence that in the leaning in, in not ignoring the irritation, but pushing into the irritation, something beautiful, something that's worth treasuring will come from it. Have I also heard that in what you're saying? Amen, definitely. Well, and so with these two notions of grit, this notion of kind of internal 
fortitude to keep going and the notion that something good will come out of this. Is it fair to characterize your book, I Am My Own Sanctuary, as as a sort of theological self-help book? W- would that be a fair characterization, or would you characterize it in a different way? No, that's definitely a fair characterization. Well, and so when we're thinking about it this way, I, as you were describing grit, what came to mind is a quotation that you use late in the book from the, the theologian Howard Thurman. And Howard Thurman talks about the place where, you know, we are called to be in the world is the place, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, so maybe you can correct me, but it, we're called to the place that makes us come alive. And if we go to the place that makes us come alive, that that is really the way to best serve the needs of the world not so much to ask, what does the world need and how can I fill that need, but to ask instead, what is it that makes me feel the most myself? What is it that makes me feel the most radiant? And if I can find ways to nurture that, that that will actually help others to come alive themselves. And so as I'm hearing this in terms of the discussion of grit, am, am I connecting that quotation in the correct way, or is there a better way for me to connect it? No, definitely. You, you said it perfectly. Well, so help me understand then, how are we as listeners to begin to discover what it is that makes us come alive? And, and so what I'm asking you basically is the thesis of your book, the reason why you wrote this book. How do we begin to dig into what it is that makes us come alive, as Howard Thurman said? Yeah, definitely. So like any good lesson planner or sermon writer, I end the book with an invitation to apply it to your life nothing new there. That's just the way that you would write a sermon or a lesson. And so the the application chapter at the end is after we've explored these different parts of your own sanctuary, the mind and spirit and emotions and the body, and then we end it with this idea of serving from the soul. I share as a curious Protestant of this amazing moment I had with, with Mary, the Mother Mary in this chapel, and what I also talk about in that chapter is I, I give five tips, five tips for discovering your vocational calling to be, to, if one is wired like I am, my personality type, this is going to land perfectly for that person. And that is the tip of being careful not to confuse compliments with calling. Most of my life I did that, and God brought good from that, and that probably was a defense mechanism for me that helped me survive certain relational systems I was in at certain periods of my life. But overall, it's it's not healthy to confuse compliments for calling. And so there's I break down each of these five tips, and this idea of asking yourself when you're complimented on something, of a task or a project or something that you exuded talent and energy towards, ask yourself, would I have as much fun doing this thing if I was alone in a room all day and no one saw me do it? There's a hilarious story I share there that's from Parker Palmer, our friendly Quaker, in his book, Let Your Life Speak. He talks about how he was so excited he got the opportunity to be a president of a university. And he is, I'm sure some of your listeners know this story. And so, like a good Quaker, he got in his accountability group. It's not called that, but he got in this group of fellow members of the body of Christ, and they asked him hard questions about this decision before he accepted the job. And some wise person in that circle asked him, Parker, when you think about this job, what part of it makes you the most excited? Which part brings you the most joy? And Parker said, without missing a beat, the first thing that intuitively came to him was, 
seeing my picture on the front page of the paper with the caption, new president of the university. <laughs> and he realized in that moment that, that he wasn't excited about the work. He was excited about the compliment, the praise. And so that's the first tip. The second one is seeking your time warp. And there's something miraculously amazing that happens neurologically when we are working on on work that is rewarding to us, that brings us joy. And so we've all experienced it when time, when you're working on something for five hours and your alarm goes off to go pick up your kid from school and it's been five hours, but it's only felt like 30 minutes and time seems to freeze and also flies by. Well, there's the way that God designed our brains, there's something neurologically that's happening there that will blow your mind when you read about it. And it points to, and notice those moments and understand what's happening, that this is a divine breadcrumb or divine hint that this is the work you were made to do. And then the third tip is seeking your effortless grit. These moments that you notice others on the team really struggling to find joy in the work and really struggling to produce at the at the quality that you are producing, quality level that you're producing. You notice people saying things like, I don't know, how do you how do you get your energy for this kind of work or how, how do you keep doing this? And for you, it's just there's so much joy in it that the, the grit is, this level of resiliency is, is effortless to you. And there's so much energy in it, and it's draining to others, but it's so life-giving to you. And so and in those moments, noticing when the compliments and your a level of joy and grit match. The last two tips for discerning your vocational calling are surrendering to the present vision to find future steps. So what I mean by that is millennials or older Gen Z kids now, but I think it's also in second career Xers and and whatnot as well. And what I what I have experienced myself and have sensed from others is they get this vision. God gives them a vision, whether in a dream at night or during the day, this this vision of what their ideal position or weight or venue to serve will look like or daily to-do list will look like or ideal client would look like. And they have this vision, but they don't know the steps to get there. And so another way to say that is they've been given step D, but they, they have not yet seen step A, B, and C. And so one tip that I like to share is to, with your whole being, surrender to that, that vision that God has placed on your heart. And once you surrender to it, knowing that your present step will come to you, and that could be as simple as, I'm going to get on social media and reach out to someone who is where I think I want to be in 10 years from now, and I'm going to ask him or her just for what did they do when they were in my stage? And then that might lead to step B, which is a an interview for an internship, and that interview for an internship might lead to you landing it and then connecting to your first actual paying job in this field. And then five to seven years down the road, you realize that that vision that God gave you that you surrendered to, even though you didn't have all the facts figured out, even though people told you that insurance will suck in that job or that job doesn't exist or libraries aren't going to be around in 10 years and other lies like that, <laughs> just, just surrendering to that future vision in order to be open to steps A, B, and C to get to step D. And then the last one is same calling, different gigs. And I, I was very blessed when I was an undergraduate student to have an amazing campus minister, Reverend Ashley Alley Crawford, and she taught us that 
to establish this mission statement and that the average millennial is going to have around 14 different positions <laughs> in their life, that titles, professional positions that they would hold. And so finding peace and being confident in your overarching life mission statement and then knowing that under that umbrella you will be using this similar set of gifts and talents but serving potentially different types of audiences, serving under different hats, and being okay with that and owning that. And so one example I love to give is that I have a very good friend, um, Chandra, and she has talked and I, we, we have talked about this and I, I feel that she, her life mission statement is that God made her to be amazing at making uncomfortable conversations very comfortable. And with that, she, throughout her life, and she's in her 40s now, and throughout her adult life, she has been a, she worked in an airline, and when people's tickets were messed up or when they lost their luggage, they were sent to her. And then she went on and um, became a mortician, and she writes eulogies with the grieving family. She talks to the family about what preferences they have for preparing the body for burial, very uncomfortable conversations. And at the same time as that position, she worked very part-time at a church preschool where she was the person that would reach out to you when you were late on your payments. And so just kept using this skill set of, I make uncomfortable conversations comfortable. And, and she's phenomenal at it, and God's used her in so many ways. So just finding confidence and comfort that it is, for anyone that needs to hear this, it is okay that you will have different positions and different titles in your life that you want to serve from this place of an overarching mission statement of the same calling but different gigs. And be open, be open, be open to that as God guides you and leads you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Meggie Lee Calvin. She's Director of Engagement at the Institute for Discipleship at Southwestern College. We're talking about her recent book, I Am My Own Sanctuary, How a Recovering Holy Roller Found Healing and Power. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest today is Meggie Lee Calvin. She's Director of Engagement at the Institute for Discipleship at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. Today, we're discussing her recent book, I Am My Own Sanctuary, How a Recovering Holy Roller Found Healing and Power. Well, I want to ask now about this word that you use, sanctuary. And I want to begin asking that by by a reference that you make to a cathedral named Chartres Cathedral and your engagement with Chartres Cathedral. So first of all, for listeners who may be unfamiliar with this amazing piece of architecture, tell us a little bit about Chartres Cathedral. So this cathedral is in France, and it it looks similar to the cathedral of Notre Dame. As I jokingly made that mistake in, in the book, I, I was able to go visit Chartres Cathedral when I was 14, and it, it's most famous for the, the labyrinth it has on the, the floor of the, of the sanctuary space, of the cathedral space, and it has the rose petals in the middle of, the, of, the, of this labyrinth, this guided prayer walk. And there are some studies, I'm going to nerd out for a little bit, that there was a school of theology there years ago, and that each of those petals 
in the middle of the labyrinth represent a line of the Lord's Prayer, and that was the meat of their curriculum at that school of theology there years, 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 centuries ago. And it was a very holy place to visit and to walk that prayer labyrinth when I was 14. And then when it came time for me to write this book, as as God always does, or these moments of synchronicity, these God moments happen, I was reading a book that was, and I, I must have been not listening as a 14-year-old, which is not at all a surprise, <laughs> but I missed this part, and that is that the Sharks Cathedral has withstood so much and is so, so insanely beautiful and strong, and it was built by the, the, the townspeople there, and there's no record of how they could have afforded to build it, and then after they built it, there was lots of war in the area, and it was untouched. Houses around it and were destroyed, but it, it stayed. It remained strong. Legend and legend, story after story of the the grit of this building and what happened within it, and how the the townspeople. I, I believe some of the research shows that there was a time when men were being recruited to go fight in these battles, and many of them declined and decided, no, we're going to build this place of we're going to build this place of peace. So they they put their time and energy towards the cathedral. And I, I use that story to build up the reader's confidence to take ownership that you too can be like this, the Chartres Cathedral. You can be like Chartres, if I want to say it in a French accent. You can be this this place of peace that is untouchable to the outside chaos, regardless of what's going on around you. And um, but I do realize the title, the title, which has been my life mantra for almost a decade now, I realize the title is gonna going to also just rock the boat just for being what it is. And so I, I totally, totally own that, but I have no regrets about it. <laughs> so if I'm hearing you correctly, this image of the cathedral, Chartres Cathedral, is that it is, it is this protected space in the midst of life's chaos. And so I can understand completely, given how you write your book, I Am My Own Sanctuary, why that would be such a powerful image for you, because you're talking about, you know, the kind of unfolding chaos of emotions and expectations and finding that place that is safe and is untouched in the midst of that and affirming that. And so let's dig into this notion of kind of what you're saying when you use the word sanctuary, because I'll be honest, when I first came across the title, I thought about that old evangelical praise song, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, and and, <laughs> and the whole notion of that. And you're taking it in a slightly different direction, aren't you? Yeah, so I, and this is probably already obvious, and everything I've said so far from when I was younger, I struggled to be a differentiated person, and in psychology, that is the goal of the pinnacle of emotional health, is to be a differentiated person, and that means that someone has a healthy balance of autonomy and togetherness with the, the relational systems they are in. They they don't make choices from a place of appeasing people in their relational systems. They don't make choices from a place of impressing those in their life. They can let other people own their own emotional health, and they can own their own and I had noticed, not only in myself, but in others, in ministerial leaders, that there were a lot of ministerial leaders that, like me, <laughs> were not differentiated. They were not emotionally healthy people. And so I wanted this, when I came across the quote, and I first saw it in Latin and loved it, and when I came across that, ego, sanctuario, mio, probably butchered that, it 
wasn't only my life mantra that I had been speaking, but it was also this identity that I wanted to live into, that I wanted to be, I wanted to stop making choices based on what was impressing or appeasing my Christian mentors, my parishioners. I really, I I was in my early to mid-20s, and I I wanted to make a choice, gosh darn it, (laughs) that was that was honoring to how God made me and not what people wanted me to do and not for the compliments. And, and so I, I wanted to be, I wanted to be differentiated. And so this idea of my own, my own sanctuary, it, it did, it did inspired me toward that end. And, and then the second part of that, of the title and of that life mantra for me was that when we take ownership, when we own it, own our identity as our own sanctuary, we are dating or believing that, because the divine dwells within us, we can move past any wound for in ourselves. We can find grace for ourselves, grace for others. We can cultivate grit because we have this arsenal of grit and grace within us because of the divine. And in cultivating that grit and that grace, we can create beautiful, we can birth beautiful ideas into the world, owning that we, we have the divine within us. And we talk often about how God is imminent and God is also transcendent. And I think too often, especially in more create in more evangelical circles, we believe that confidence and ambition is dirty and sinful, and um, all credit goes to God. And we forget that God. Well, some don't forget. Some just don't believe this. But I believe that we're called to be co-creators of God. And God wants us to reach our fullest potential, and God wants us to create excellent, beautiful things, and then be proud of ourselves and say, gosh, I'm really talented at this, and look what I just created with God as a co-creator. And so owning that ambition is not sinful. And yeah, so all of of that goes into this idea of I am my own sanctuary and encouraging others to own that as well. What I love about that is is it ties so well with this image that you gave us earlier in the conversation about Shark Cathedral, the time and the resources and the miraculous way in which that came almost inexplicably into existence, but it, it took effort and time. You're not talking about something that is a snap of the fingers that happens overnight. And as your book, I Am My Own Sanctuary, lays out, there are steps and processes that we undertake to explore and discover and build this sanctuary that is ourselves. And it is a process that is both our own efforts, but also the miraculous, grace-filled companionship of God. And first of all, as, I, as I'm thinking about these connections, am I landing in the right place, or would you adjust a little bit about where my feet are landing? No, 100%. And so when a person is on this journey, and when they're, when they're thinking about becoming their own sanctuary, you just said it, that, that oftentimes we get narratives that say, oh, that's, that's prideful. You're being too boastful. You're being, and, and if I'm hearing you correctly, you don't want to give power to that narrative of boastfulness and pride. Instead, you want to say, the God that created you is a God that loves beauty and loves, loves the, the competence that comes from being the selves that we were created to be. And so you're really trying to encourage readers to step out of their shells, step out of their hiddenness into a sort of, a sort of light, aren't you? Yes, definitely, definitely. In, in my position at the Institute for Discipleship, one of the, the super fun parts of my role here is I, I get to coach online instructors 
who teach theological or spiritual courses, I get to coach them in, in marketing their online courses. And there is so much work to be done <laughs> with getting rid of this stigma around telling people about their work, about, in, about marketing, about promoting their course, even though they believe their course is holy and healing and equipping and God breathes, they're so afraid and don't want they fight me on it. <laughs> it's such a long part of the, the initial coaching meeting is just I'm I know I'm gonna have to give forty minutes to get over that stigma, that limiting belief that it would be sinful of me to invite someone to take my course. And so there there is a definite definite stigma there. Yeah, that that would be Boastful. Where do you think that that fear comes from? Like, what what is the main source of that in our culture today? It's so interesting because right as I said that, I realized that a lot of the instructors I work with are um, are Generation X or younger boomers, and that I also am reminded of this amazing line <laughs> that I heard from Min, from the comedian Mindy Kaling in her new show that everyone should watch with Emma Thompson called Late Night on Prime. Mindy Kaling has this amazing line that she that she says, what is it with this generation and sharing everything? <laughs> it's a form of catharsisism. And, <laughs> and she combined the words narcissism with being cathartic. <laughs> okay, but the question was, where does that come from? So I'm thinking, I think it comes from, it could be a generational thing. Do I know a Bible verse off the top of my head that I could quote? The, the first shall be last, last shall be first. And I think we incorrectly interpret that to mean something along the lines of God wants me to, as Marianne Williamson says, Marianne Williams says, cloak my gift to play small, to shrink. <laughs> I can think of so many praise songs that are that have lyrics like, make me disappear, <laughs> let them see you, not me. And so um, this place that it is godly for me to, to not own my own power, to not own my own confidence, to not know that I am talented at this. And, and I, I share in the book that, that quote by, I want to say it's, it's Rick Warren, that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. And it's like the most powerful quote. It's very simple and there's so much truth there. I think some Christians, we, we, have, we have confused that, that the more we shrink back, the more we cloak our gifts, the more we play small and give credit to everyone but ourselves, that that makes us more godly. And I don't think further—I think that's the furthest thing from the truth. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Meggie Lee Calvin. She's Director of Engagement at the Institute for Discipleship at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. We're discussing her recent book, I Am My Own Sanctuary, How a Recovering Holy Roller Found Healing and Power. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. 
You can find the Commonweal Podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Meggie Lee Calvin. She is the Director of Engagement for the Institute for Discipleship at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. We're discussing her recent book, I Am My Own Sanctuary, How a Recovering Holy Roller Found Healing and Power. Well, in your book, I Am My Own Sanctuary, you are very uh, willing to share intimate details of your life and your journey with your reader. But I'm wondering if I can ask you how writing this book has affected your spiritual life presently. Like, as you have gone through the process of writing this book, how has it changed you? Oh, yeah. It's changed me a lot. (laughs) So, so much. So, so much. So um, the Enneagram is very prevalent, and thankfully my missionary grandmother got me on that boat, on that train, in 2014, and I went on a retreat with her, and it was a very healing retreat at a, at a church down in Houston over the Enneagram, and I found out that I was an Enneagram 3, so what that means is that's the achiever slash performer, performer is really a better title for it, and like many of your listeners are aware, that means that at some point in my life, <laughs> in my relational system, led to me believing that in order to feel loved and to be loved, I had to perform well and impress. And so there's a superpower there that a lot of us in Enneagram 3s, um, we are um, amazing athletes or public speakers or actors. And so because we can feel exactly what the audience in front of us wants and needs, and we'll morph into that automatically without even thinking about it. And so we're great, great at literally performing. And the problem is, though, in Enneagram 3 is unhealthy, which which I was, and I share about that in the book, unhealthy and undifferentiated. As a three, I... I or we, we threes, we morph subconsciously, morph un- unconsciously, and just become whatever needs to be impressive for the group of people we are hanging out with. So our preferences become invis- invisible. We, we don't know who we are. We just know what we can do to be impressive and fun for us is working. The majority of us are, are recovering workaholics or are workaholics because how can we have fun if there's no goal? How can we have fun if there's no one to applaud us? <laughs> and then we start seeing other people just as connections and ways to help us get to a more impressive place as opposed to seeing people just as people. So lots of unhealth there. And what this book is going to do and is doing is putting it all out there and I'm going to have I'm going to have some mentors and some friends that do not find me impressive after reading this book. <laughs> and so and that is very healing to me actually. And I never thought I never thought I would write a book with cathartic moments of cussing. But I did, and I wanted to, and I know that's going to turn some readers off, but I, I felt it was needed, and it was honoring my voice, and I I feel like, I know there were moments, some of the editors <laughs> who read parts of the book emailed me back, and they, they said things like, this is this is kind of offensive, How about, or this is unnecessary, can you take this out? <laughs> I remember talking to my husband and my business coach about it, and they were both like, if they become uncomfortable, ask yourself, are they your target audience? And the answer to this, this moment was, no, this editor is not my target audience. And this is my authorial voice. I'm going to honor this. And I'm, I'm sorry if, if me describing 
my makeout session with a stripper offends you. That is needed in this chapter over purity culture and having grace for my body is I intentionally wanted to make the reader feel, for lack of better words, to feel aroused in an appropriate way. And so I felt it was needed to share about this time when I made out with this stripper on a first date. As weird as it sounds, as as an Enneagram 3 who's lived my life trying to be impressive, writing a book that is not going to impress everyone is awesome for me (laughs) because I've never... I, I, you're a creator, and I know some of your listeners are creators, too. This book took on a life form of its own, and I loved meeting with it on Right Night Tuesday. I felt like I was going to hang out with a friend when I would go work on it every Tuesday night, and it just took on this this unexpected life form. And then I realized, like, you know, writers talk about or, or songwriters talk about or painters talk about, creators talk about that time they found their voice. And I've always loved to write, and even the first book, it had moments of wit in it, which was surprising to some of the readers because of the topic. But I I feel like in this book, this book that will not impress everyone and will offend some people, it's a three, an Enneagram three, taking off the mask of always wanting to be impressive and saying, here I am. (laughs) You might not be impressed, but I want to share this story with my fellow spiritually attuned go-getters who are just so hungry to laugh and hungry to be encouraged to own their power because the divine dwells within them and are hungry to be reminded that they have enough grace already for every wound. They have enough grit for every goal. No no permission needed, no applause needed, just go for it. And own your own emotional health as your own sanctuary. And um, yeah, so it's, it's been very, very healing for me to, to write it. But more, more importantly, I know it's the things we create only exist because someone out there is hungry for us to create them. And so most importantly, I, I want it to be an enjoyable healing read with a few laughs for for the person out there that's been hungry for it. Well, and, and let's talk about that for a moment, because at several points throughout the book, I Am My Own Sanctuary, you refer to the reader and you use this wonderful phrase. You call them dear reader friend. And I'm curious, and I was curious as I was reading the book, who is it that you're imagining on the other side of that phrase? Who is the dear reader friend? Who is the audience for this book? Yeah, yeah. So he or she is most likely going to be a moderate or progressive Christian. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) my conservative Christian friends. (laughs) Just save your money. (laughs) <laughs> just kidding. No, but but in all seriousness, yeah, I, I tell people that this book is the book baby that Seth Meyers and Sister Joan Chittister had together because it's aiming to be flippant and self-deprecating, but it's also hopefully bringing forth some spiritual depth and nourishment. So this book is for you if, if you prefer to laugh out loud while you learn a lot, and it's for you if you're done with having your feelings or mood determined by the choices of others. This book is for you if you're done with negative self-talk holding you back from chasing goals you were made to chase. It's for you if you're ready to dive spiritually deeper into whom you were made to be and own your power. It's for you if you're ready to have the gumption and free yourself from emotionally toxic people, because even though the book's about titled I Am My Own Sanctuary, I'm in no way stating that there's not a place for empathy and corporate worship, and that's why purposely the longest chapter in the book is over relationships. And this book is for you if you're you're open, if you're open to being encouraged through the connection of the mind, body, spirit, and soul. 
And then it's for you if you're if you adore books that offer reflection questions because not only are there reflection questions at the end of each chapter because I'm a fellow journaler, but it's also the choir publishing company is going to put out a supplemental journal with a book that has ten questions with lines that are just beckoning you to write on them. Ten questions for each of the six chapter in a in a journal that's coming out later. And then lastly it's for you if you are a spiritually attuned go getter who's hungry for a resource that will help you to find confidence and certainty in who you are, even if you feel like a fake while maintaining your job and social life and without disappointing those you respect. That's that's who this book was written for. And so as you have been reflecting on how this book has changed you and who you hope this book is for, in the process of doing all that, what was it that gave you the courage to keep going? Because this this is a very honest book. Let's just let's yeah. put it on the table. And it's a book that you you said just now you are you are aware may offend some people. That's a scary right. place to be. That's terrifying. What is it that that gives you? What is it that gave you the chutzpah to keep going? The uh, ah. the the drive to keep going in the midst of that. Oh, first and foremost, one of the editors saying you need to be more vulnerable here. <laughs> And so, and then me fighting it tooth and nail, and then realizing that it is not wise for one to be vulnerable just for vulnerability's sake. And so I, I fought it tooth and nail with, with my business coach and the publisher, and um, I thought, I, I, I don't want to write from a place of getting people's attention just from the shock factor, just for the shock factor. If I'm going to be vulnerable, it needs to, it needs to have the, the motivation behind it of being helpful or teaching someone else, serving to better serve someone. So, yeah, it was such a gradual process of me, I guess, owning, becoming confident and once again checking in with myself, who are the people God is calling me to serve right now at this season of my life? Are my choices being made from a place of impressing some friends, impressing some mentors, impressing some professional connections, or are my choices being made from a place of it, this is going to best serve my my audience, best serve the people that God is calling me to serve right now. And so when I started thinking about the, the people that were most likely to buy this book and enjoy this book, it definitely gave me the courage to write honestly. And so as I tell some of my friends who want to write and want to uh, that are scared to make that first step to get their book published or write write a manuscript. I I don't know how helpful this advice is, but it was to me. And that was, what would I say to my own daughter when she's a teenager, of course, because there, there are, like I said, there's moments of cathartic cussing in the book. Um, what would I say to her? What, what lessons would I want her to have? And since my daughter and my husband know me the best out of anyone in the world, they're, they're really once I started doing it that way, like, how would this book help Henley, my daughter? What would I want? That gave me the strength to take off the the Performer 3 impressive mask and be totally, totally honest. And so, yeah. Well, Maggie Lee Calvin, I found this book to be incredibly encouraging, and I'm so glad that you wrote it. And I'm especially glad that you took time today to talk about it with me and with my listeners. Thank you for writing I Am My Own Sanctuary. My, my pleasure. Thank you for this time today. We've been speaking today with Meggie Lee Calvin. She's Director of Engagement at the Institute for Discipleship at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. She co-hosts a 
podcast called The Listening Chair. She's the author of The Blue Bonnet Child and her most recent book, I Am My Own Sanctuary, How a Recovering Holy Roller Found Healing and Power. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.